Hello, everyone. Let's go into uh, our time of the word. Uh, we're going to continue on in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2. Uh, believe it or not, we're moving pretty fast at this point. Um, you know, we're at chapter 2 now, and next week, chapter 3, and, you know, it's going to be uh, going fast. But uh, so far, I hope that God's been speaking to you through this book, a great book, a deep book um, that I, I love, and uh, hopefully we can continue to... Um, you know, strive on um, to hear God's word together from this book. So let me read it for us. Again, the, uh, the passage for today is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And then I'll, uh, I'll pray for us and uh, we'll uh, move on ahead. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is God's word. Uh, please bow your heads with me again. Um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, good to hear uh, the word, the Spirit, because our hope is in Him. It's through Him that our hearts would be open to your word. It is through Him that our hearts will be coming alive. It's not through our own efforts conjuring up some sort of emotion in any way. It, it has to be, God, your work. God, first and foremost, humble my heart so that I can humbly deliver your word. And may, may you open the hearts of everyone here, also through those who are joining us through the live stream as well, that uh, all of us uh, may hear your word and come alive and live for things that truly matter in this life, God. But thank you for this time. Thank you for your presence here, even right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, let me share right away uh, the three points that we have for uh, this message. Uh, the title, by the way, of the sermon is the Grace-Filled Church. The first point will be Grace-Filled Remembrance. Second, the Grace-Filled Relationships. And thirdly, the Grace-Filled Church. So let's delve in right away. First point, the Grace-Filled Remembrance. Verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you, you Gentiles in the flesh called the, the uncircum, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So here Paul is exhorting you, uh, here you has to be the Gentiles, the readers of the letter, uh, and he's telling you to remember the past here. And uh, the reason why the yous here are Gentiles is because I think the majority of the people in the churches in Ephesus uh, to whom these letters were written uh, were Gentiles. Basically, these are the people who are not Jewish. And it appears that at that time, the Jews uh, rather looked down upon the Gentiles. And we see that from the words like the uncircumcision and circumcision. And we'll discover more what, what's happening here. But basically, uh, you know, Jews call themselves uh, circumcision um, because that was their badge of honor. Uh, God gave them the sign of their relationship with God uh, through the circumcision. And they discriminated, you know, everyone else who did not have this sign uh, in their body. And therefore, they called uh, the Gentiles of these churches uh, the uncircumcision in a derogatory way. And now, you know, maybe we would think that at this point, Paul, being a you know caring pastor, uh, would jump on to you know comfort these readers about you know the situation where the Jews are picking on them, basically. But Paul surprisingly lingers on here, and he's trying to make a point here. So let's uh, follow his logic here. So verse twelve, he says, again, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul here is saying that, uh, you know, though the Jews are, you know, being mean, but hey, Gentiles, just hang in there. Let me tell you the truth. Because although what Jews are saying are, are mean, but there's some truth. And here's the truth. The truth is, that by God's sheer grace, the Jews did have a lot of privileges in regards to their relationship with God. And so we pick out a few of them here in this verse, uh, two of them actually. First one, uh, it says the Gentiles were separated from Christ. Uh, the word Christ uh, can also be translated Messiah. That Messiah is Hebrew and you know Christ is Greek. And what that means is the Jews, unlike the Gentiles, had from their scriptures the, the prophecies about the Messiah who would come and deliver them from their miseries. So they had high hopes for the Messiah because the Old Testament and the prof, uh, prophets you know, prophesied about this coming Messiah. And the Gentiles, again, didn't have any of that. So that's the first privilege that the Gentiles did not have, but Jews had. Second one is this. It also says that 
they were strangers to the covenant of promise. So again, God graciously gave the Israelites covenants. Uh, that basically means, you know, some sort of a agreement uh, to enter into a relationship, and God initiated it with the people of Israel. And indeed, like Paul says here, there are a lot of promises uh, attached to this covenant. For example, he promised Abraham the land of Canaan, the numerous descendants, and also other blessings on earth, graciously. But more significantly, perhaps, God promised through Prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel that he would eventually make a new covenant with them. That's what it's called, new covenant, uh, through which their sins will be forgiven and they will be given new hearts and new mindset uh, to understand God's word and also have desire to obey God. That was a promise, and ultimately it was fulfilled by Christ. Amazing promises. But again, the Gentiles hadn't, didn't have any of this. So therefore, in conclusion, Paul says in the, in the verse, he says, the Gentiles had no hope without God in this world. Okay, he's not trying to be just depressing here, but it's, it's reality. He's, he's saying that because the Jews had these revelations from God in their scriptures and through their prophets and through God's grace, you know, they had these privileges. But the Gentiles did not have any of this. So therefore, there's nothing to look forward to. There's no hope. If they had hope, it, there, there, had, there was no substance to their hopes. So Paul is saying it is true that there was no hope and no help for you Gentiles. That was a reality. But then, verse 13, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love it when Paul says, you know, but now, or but God. Turning point there. As we learned last week, by God's grace, he poured out his grace on you know, people that didn't, didn't deserve any of his favor. And then God sent Jesus Christ to die for them, and he saved them uh, through his sacrifice. So in that sense, it says, the Gentiles were brought near, meaning they were far off, having no hope, having no covenant, things like that, and now they're nearer to God. And now they can have privileges and hope, and we'll look at that in a moment. And therefore, by lingering on in this sort of a bad news about the Gentiles, again, he's saying, Gentiles, remember these things. Why? Because I need you to be humble and as you remember where you came from, you'll have more gratitude about God's grace and love for you. And I believe that is what Paul is saying to us too, that we are to pause and remember what we have in Christ, where we came from. Uh, I won't mention the name of this country that I, I went to, but um, I, I went to this country uh, for a mission trip several years ago. I don't want to mention the name because I don't want to. I don't want you to judge this country, you know, unfairly. Uh, but when I went there, it was a culture shock uh, because there are 
things, many things actually, that were very different uh, compared to the U.S. And one thing that shocked me and my team members uh, was the fact that all the toilets in the country uh, would not flush. And uh, I just can't remember how I resolved this problem while I was there for a month. Uh, but I remember it was just so hard. Um, you know, you go to the bathroom and use the toilet many, many times throughout the, throughout the day, throughout the week. That's part of your life. And just imagine you, you not being able to flush it, right? And uh, so the month has passed, and we came back. I remember uh, we came back to the U.S., and uh, when we were at the airport, I remember some of the guys went to the restroom, and uh, we stood around one, one of the toilets, and uh, we realized we can't flush now. And we just kept flushing over and over, saying, whoa, it's flushing. And that was amazing. You know, we definitely took that for granted before we you know, uh, left the country. And I'm sure that because spiritually too, you know, we may take a lot of things for granted. For me, uh, I think part of my Christian testimony is that when I was a teenager, I felt utterly, utterly hopeless. Uh, you know, I was purely driven by how well I was doing in school, how to, how to please my parents, and how I looked on the outside. So I remember constantly feeling empty thinking, man, you know, I'm only like 15 or 16, but is this all there is in life? I was asking that question to myself time to time. But when the gospel came to me when I was a senior in high school, it gave me a new purpose in life and something to live for, something that was much more worthwhile than just grades and things like that. Good things, but not ultimate things. And I remember just, in, just experiencing joy and hope in the subsequent, subsequent you know, months and years because of this new hope that I found. But you see, unless I intentionally remember this, I'll forget. I'll easily forget about the blessings and you know, privilege that I have in God's blessings and God's salvation. And I think it's true for a lot of us. So let me remind us for a little bit here, whether you're a Christian or not, can we consider for a moment you know, what life is like without God? What life is like, what world is like without the hope of the gospel? Uh, I remember reading an interview uh, of Ted Turner, uh, I think next slide. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but uh, he's actually one of the wealthiest person um, he's a media mogul. Uh, he's a founder of CNN, actually, and the TBS. I think TBS stands for like Turner Broadcasting System or something. A very successful guy. But in the interview with the CNN, uh, it struck me. He, he was being really honest about himself. And he was basically saying that uh, he's afraid of uh, dying. He's afraid of not going to heaven. So he said he's doing a lot of good things uh, to make up for the chance of going to heaven. He's doing a lot of you know, charitable things here and there. But then he says he's not sure about his chance of going to heaven. The question, the same question, can we ask that? You know, are we sure 
of our eternal destiny? Do we have a clear purpose in our lives that is beyond this world? Do we have joy that is above our circumstances? Psalm 16.2 says this, I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Striking words there, isn't it? Meaning without God, there is no good. Life is bound to be hopeless. But praise be to God, He graciously reaches out to us in Jesus Christ. And through faith in Him, we can taste His goodness. So Paul says, remember, remember what it's like to be without God. But with God, everything changes. The grace-filled remembrance. Second, the grace-filled relationships. So now we're about to look at horizontal aspect of this. So just now we looked at the vertical aspect of how we were saved and redeemed um, to be nearer to God. But now, the gospel uh, reaches out horizontally too. So verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So now, we got to discover what, what happened between the Jews and the Gentiles. Here's what happened. Again, like we said earlier, the Jews had all the privileges and you know blessings of being God's people and in the that wasn't it so like they were blessed but God didn't do that God didn't bless them just to spoil them there was a definite purpose of his blessings look with me to Isaiah 49 6 it says uh, God saying to the Israelites he says I will make you as a light for the nations or Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, God blessed Israel so that they would be a blessing to the nations around them, to the Gentiles. And along with that, God gave them the law to obey. You know, you know about the Ten Commandments and all these laws in the Old Testament. Not just so that you know He could make them robots, but He wanted them to be holy set apart so that the nations around them could learn about God, could learn about God's holiness, so that they could revere God and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That was the purpose. But unfortunately, as we get to see, Israel abused God's blessings for their own benefits, and they never fulfilled the calling that God gave them. Instead of, you know, using the blessings for others, they use them to elevate themselves. And even, you know, following the law, they did it. But they did it so that they could, you know, give themselves the, the honorable label of the circumcision while giving Gentiles eh, the uncircumcision. It was for themselves. It was not to be a blessing, but it was all for themselves. And as you can imagine, as, as Jews are behaving like this, uh, the Gentiles notice that. You know, if you like read through Julius Caesar and all these, you know, ancient documents, they they notice that Jews are uh, prideful in this regard, and the the Gentiles got offended. 
So there was this hostility that happened because of you know, these two prideful entities. And the verse says, interestingly, Jesus came and that he became the peace between these two parties, warring parties, and he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between them. So somehow, Jesus solved the problem. There is no more hostility. The question now is, how did he do that? So follow with me. Verse 15, he said, he did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Here, the, the key words are abolishing the law of commandments. What this means is that you know, there was no one, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, it's clear, there's no one on earth that can possibly keep the law of Moses perfectly. You know, even the people, the, especially the Jews at the time, they, they claimed that they kept the law perfectly, even beyond, you know, required. But Jesus pointed out that even when they're keeping the law, they are sinning in their hearts, you know, evidenced by, again, their pride towards the Gentiles and their unloving attitude towards them. So there's absolutely nobody that can be saved and find salvation through their own works. So when Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. He kept all the laws and regulations. And yet, he died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty of our violations of the law. And now, the only way, therefore, for any human being to be saved and to be right with God is for us to receive Christ's accomplishments by faith. And that's what we learned last week. Only by faith, only as a gift, can we find salvation. No one can earn it. That's what, that's what Paul has been, you know, just playing with us. That's the truth. Nobody can earn by their works. The salvation is grace. And now, in the next few verses, Paul will describe for us the result of the salvation. Uh, verses 16 through 18, he says, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The result of salvation is, at least individually, we'll talk about corporate in a moment, but individually, each believer now has access to God. Before, we couldn't stand before God. Otherwise, we would die. God is infinitely holy. We're not. God should, in his justice, you know, uh, annihilate us. But in his grace, again, he gave us Jesus Christ so that we can wear his righteousness and stand before God and have this access. And it says the Father, he's not no longer just the holy God, which he is, but he's also the Father that we can approach and even call him a daddy, basically, having that intimacy with God. And, and verse 17 there uh, reiterates what we talked about earlier, which is, you know, it doesn't matter where, whether you are near, meaning for Jews, they 
seem like they're near to God because they're keeping all the laws, but inwardly they're far off. And also those who are far off, Gentiles, obviously. But Paul's saying, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, anybody needs to receive the salvation by grace. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how moral you, you appear to be. It's always by grace. So that's the result of salvation. And now, follow with me here. Back to verse 14. So now, let's answer the question that we asked earlier. And what does the cross of Christ have to do with you know, Christ healing the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles? What does that mean? How does he do that? Christ did that by, again, dying on the cross. And when he did that, he basically abolished that system of people who use the laws to save themselves, to elevate themselves. Again, Jews use the laws to you know, make themselves look better, look moral uh, than the Gentiles. But now that Christ came and the reality is salvation is only by grace. We only receive what that means is it doesn't matter whether you, you know, break one or two laws or you break hundreds of laws, you are on the same plane. And therefore, if you keep more laws, you cannot boast because you have to still go to hell. That's justice. But if you receive God's grace, you're on the same plane. Nobody can boast. And therefore, there's no longer the hostility and each person instead would uh, taste the grace from God and how God was kind to you, how, how he's grace, gracious to you, even though you are a sinner. And when you see that kindness, that graciousness, you are also to emulate that towards other people. Do not look at people based on how they meet, their, meet your standards, but you treat them kindly no matter what because that's what God is like to you. That changes everything. That changes relationships. Grace becomes the measure of our relationships. That's how Christ killed hostility between these two groups that used to fight. Let me illustrate this way. Several years ago, um, you know, my friends signed up for this uh, mud run. I forgot the exact name, but it's mud race or run. Uh, which basically means you run in the mud. And, uh, and they asked me to give them a ride there and, and back. And uh, a good friend that I am, I, I, I said yes. So I drove them in the morning, and uh, I dropped them off at the you know, field. And guess what I did right afterwards? I drove straight to the Home Depot, uh, and, and got the painter's plastic sheet to cover my car seats in, in, the, in the back or wherever they're going to sit, right? Because I could just foresee everything that they're going to come back with all the mud, you know, on, on their whole body and they're going to ruin my car. So I, I cover everything. Um, and then, you know, when I went back to pick them up, um, as expected, you know, it wasn't pretty. 
not only were they muddy, but they are very sweaty, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And but I was confident about what I did to my car, but even so, after they left, it was messy. So it, it wasn't a pretty situation. But anyways, uh, afterwards, um, you know, I, I just felt really bad, bad for them. You know, they're just like, you know, they look miserable, right? So I, I brought them to my house and uh, I, I let them, you know, take shower one by one and, you know, they're all good. But kind of going back to that story, now imagine with me, okay? So on the way back home from that race, you know, what if, you know, my friends like started criticizing each other about how dirty they are? You know, say like one of them got really insecure and he tried to like scrub himself as much as possible so he would look, you know, less dirtier than his friends and, and he would start comparing himself uh, to them and, you know, starts boasting how clean he is, you know? And as they're fighting, you know, I would be looking at them through my rearview mirror and I'll be like, are you serious? You guys are all dirty, you know, no matter how, you know, how much you scrub yourself and get some mud off of yourself, you're still dirty. What are you, talk what are you talking about? Um, the, the, the thing is, they can only be truly clean if they take my offer to go, to, to go home and take shower. Only then they can be clean. Doesn't matter what they do to, to themselves at that point. And I share that because I think that's what's happening in the world. It's like that. Uh, you know, because of sin, you know, everyone is muddy, so to speak, and absolutely dirty. But out of our insecurity, all of us try to scrub ourselves and try to look better somehow. And for some of us, that might mean, you know, perhaps more morality. You try to live better. For some of us, it might mean, you know, good grace, good performance at your job. Whatever, you know, that can make you look better than you are now or than others. We try to do that. We scrub ourselves. But in the eyes of God, if God is looking at our, us through the mirror or directly, uh, who is you know, perfect, he's clean, he's, he's holy, that must be a ridiculous scene, right? We're trying to scrub ourselves uh, through our means. No matter what we do, we can never be perfectly be clean. In fact, it will make a lot of mess um, you know, in our relationships and in the world. It's only when we take God's gracious offer and take shower, so to speak, in the precious blood of Christ. Only then we can be clean. And what's crazy is that even though we were so muddy, he never kicked us out of his car, so to speak, or his house, but he invited us. And in fact, the Bible says Jesus became muddy for us, became among us, came among us, and he died on the cross for us. So only through him we can be clean and we see his kindness, not treating us as we deserve, but treating us as with utter kindness. And now once you're out of the shower, once you're, you know, once you receive Jesus Christ and once, you're, once you've been clean, uh, cleansed by his blood, now what do you do? Do you look at others just the way you, you did before? You just compare yourself to 
them and how less muddy they are or how more muddier you are? No. If you really experienced the, the true grace of God that invited you and became muddy for you on the cross, then now you treat them with grace as well. Out of humble compassion, you treat them with kindness and offer the same uh, invitation to God to shower with uh, his blood. So before we move on, let me ask you a question or a few questions here. The question is, first of all, am I a gracious person? Am I a gracious person? Am I a kind person? Meaning, how do I react to people who fail me, who do not meet my standard, who do not talk like me, things like that? How do I react to people who are different than me? It, it makes you feel uncomfortable. You know, how do I treat people who think, who I think don't deserve my love, don't deserve my attention? How do we treat them? The truth is, if I'm not gracious to these people, if I'm not kind to people around me, there's a good chance that we do not really understand God's grace towards us. Because if you really experience and understand it, you do the same to other people. And that is a good gauge. And that is something we can examine in ourselves and grow. And through that, we become more like Christ and grace-filled in our relationships. So the grace-filled relationships. And now, lastly, we go on to the last point, the grace-filled church. So the grace-filled remembrance, grace-filled relationships, but now we'll see that it ultimately affects the church, the community. Verse 19, it says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So now Paul is basically saying, stating that, hey, Gentiles, now you are in the club. Not just another Israel, but new, whole new entity called the church. God created a new race, so to speak. There's no more Jews or Gentiles, but you are a rightful member of God's community called the church. You have all the privileges and blessings of heaven at your disposal. That's why he ends uh, that verse saying um, the citizens and members of household of God. That's the church. So let's go on here. He explains the church in a deeper way. It says, verse 20, uh, built, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this, so he's using the, the imagery of building, construction here, architecture here. So the spiritual building of the church uh, consists of people, not you know with the materials, and it has the foundation in the apostles. What that means is that uh, those who saw Jesus Christ resurrected, these are called apostles. You know they became the the foundation of the early church. And then God also used some prophets, the New Testament prophets there who could uh, reveal God's revelations. So these people were, you know, crucial parts in the beginning of the church. So they're foundations. And yet, 
he says the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. What that means is uh, in the ancient architecture structure, the cornerstone was literally a cornerstone, but the stone that was laid down first on the ground before anything else. And uh, that you would put all the other stones in the foundation uh, lining up with this cornerstone. So it was absolutely crucial. If you mess up the stone, you mess up the whole foundation and the whole building. So the role of this stone is that it comes first and it becomes a measuring stick for everything else about the whole building. Likewise, every person, every member of the church must be committed to line up with Christ and become like him, especially in, in the line of thoughts of this passage, especially be like him in his grace and kindness, just like he is to us. And when we do that, here's the result. We end with, we end with this, verses 21 and 22. It says, In whom, in Jesus Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's very simple here. The, the words holy temple equals the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, the purpose of temple is that the people would go there to meet with God. You know, God is everywhere. God is in heaven. And yet he condescended himself to meet with his people by entering and dwelling in the temple. And because of that, they could enter uh, the temple and meet with God. And yet, because of the limitation before Christ, uh, they had to go through the rituals and sacrifices and, you know, this big veil in front of them and through the priests. A lot of, uh, you know, obstacles there. But now, when Jesus came, the Bible says he became the sacrifice, meaning that by dying on the cross, he paid for all the sacrifices that we are required to uh, offer. And now, through him, we meet with God, meaning Jesus is the temple for us. He's the meeting place that we can always go to. That's what it means earlier, that we have access to God, to the holy God. We can meet with God anytime. We can cry out to him anytime. We don't have to go to the physical temple anymore. Jesus is our temple. And, and follow with me here. Because now he's the cornerstone of the church. That's what he said, right? He's the cornerstone of the church now. What that means is church becomes the temple also. In the church, it says God dwells permanently and meet with his people. Of course, it's true. You can meet with God individually in your room through prayer. But God is using the church people like us to be the meeting place where we can encounter the mighty God the God of the universe. And, and we, as a church, our job is, you know, by lining up again with the cornerstone, by becoming like him in our character, especially in our grace-filled attitude towards others, as we become more like him, we become uh, this dwelling place of God where we ourselves can experience God whenever we come to church like this. And also, the world can see the beauty of God and that the world can experience God through us 
because God dwells here with us. That's a glorious thing. That's the reality of what, who we are as a church. We're not just a group of people. God dwells here with us. This past Friday, um, I think I have a picture for that. Um, <clears throat> we had a FNL, and for post FNL, uh, we, uh, you know, painted uh, on canvases in order to help everybody de-stress. Um, and I have to confess that I didn't paint uh, because I should gain stress if I try to do anything artsy. And uh, so I dedicated my time to uh, take pictures. And, and, you know, one of them, you know, uh, blurted out saying that I'm like an Asian dad trying to take pictures. And uh, I take that as a compliment. I think I was being useful in this sense. But anyway, um, as you can see, you know, everybody did a great job. Uh, it looks really good. Um, but, you know, when it comes to painting, um, every color has to work well with one another, right? You know, if each color you know, somehow competes with other colors, it will look very unpleasant. And, and by the way, that, that's what happens when I paint. You know, that's why I don't paint. Um, it's only when every color lines up with the intention of the painter and works well with the other colors, only then the final product will be masterpiece. It'll be beautiful. It'll make the eyes of the beholder glad. And I'm saying that that's what we did at church. Uh, only when each of us line up with Christ, only when we behold the grace of God towards us, only when our, we are touched by his mercy, that God, I'm such a sinner, I don't deserve anything, I, my life's supposed to be hopeless, but you reached out to me, you were kind to me, you loved me. How can it be? Only then you know, we realize the immensity of God's grace towards us and we replicate that grace towards others. So we as paints, can, colors can work together well. And the result is that God says we are to be the display and portrait of God, the dwelling place, so that when people see us, they will experience God they will find God beautiful because of us. Because God is working through us. We're the church of God. And we are God's masterpiece by His grace. Let's pray together. Spend some time um, in prayers before we um, respond in, with a song. Um, you know, before anything, um, even before we just talked about the church, uh, I just want to invite us to um, come as you are before the cross. I mean, can you imagine? 
you know, every one of us, we, to some degrees, live on our toes all the time, right? We cannot just rest. We cannot just be who we are. But God wants us as we are. He didn't say, hey, can you clean up yourself and come? He didn't say, hey, work a little harder there and then, you know, you're qualified. The exact opposite. God says, you're not qualified, therefore I'll come to you. I'll be kind to you. I'll shower you with the riches of the world and universe because this is my love. It's not your effort. This is my grace. Do not make it cheap by trying to earn it. My grace is sufficient for you. Come as you are. May we enjoy that. I mean, again, we perhaps go back out into the world filled with laws and self-righteousness. But may right now God speak to you, comfort your heart, heal your heart, revive your heart back to the gospel. God's grace is here with us apart from our works. Let's enjoy His grace right now. Let's pray. Let's pray together. As we continue to personalize uh, God's love for us. Uh, again, if God is dwelling here with us whenever we get together as a church, uh, He is here with us and He has unique love for you, for each one of you. And as you personalize it, as you see His kindness, His undeserved favor for you, uh, may right now as, um, as we receive that, uh, let us pray that uh, we would be uh, the conduit of the same grace to other people. Uh, you know, outside of, maybe sometimes inside of the church, right? Uh, because we're tainted with sin wherever we go. But I think this day and age, you know, we just see a lot of hostility between people, um, a lot of um, just animosity. Um, but perhaps um, God is saying through this passage that uh, the way you display the, the masterpiece of my portrait is by showing the world how kind Christians can be to one another, even despite their differences despite uh, you know, different obstacles they have towards one another. And that again happens when each one of us uh, knows God's grace uh, towards uh, ourselves. So let's pray. I pray that the Holy Spirit would change us and again line us up with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, His kindness. I don't know, maybe some of us think of uh, one or two people right now when, when you hear the word kindness and grace, you know, the people that perhaps God is tugging at your heart to show kindness to. 
could be your family, uh, could be your friends. Let's pray. Let's actively seek God's grace and power in this area. And then I'll close for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, your grand grace. Um, even right now, um, we confess that uh, you know, we have sins in our hearts, uh, you know, divisions in many ways in our hearts, God. Uh, and yet, we come because of your grace. Uh, your love is like an ocean. Uh, we can always come to you and through Jesus Christ, we are always forgiven. So Lord, may you um, work in our hearts. Um, again, as we go back into our callings, um, you know, work and uh, school and um, relationships, uh, may you heal us. May you heal our hearts right now. Uh, may it be a gradual and yet by your power, may we be able to display your grace to this world and to one another especially so that our church can be a true, uh, magnificent uh, portrait of uh, your grace and your kindness. Help us, God. We need you. We are a church that uh, need more of you, much more of you than yesterday and today. Help us. 